0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading die Scripture reading this morning is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. And for those of you using your pew Bible, which is the blue Bible in front of you, that will be on page 946. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of the Lord.
1: It looks like we're going to finish chapter 10 in three sermons. You must feel like the wind is just rushing past you because we're just shooting through Romans now. Uh, The question that our sermon title asks is, have you believed the report? In many translations, the last part of verse 16 says, who has believed our report? Uh, This is the most important question, of course, uh, for any one of us. Have we believed This glorious message. You can get God's own estimate of this message from the quote in verse 15 How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! This is God's statement of those who go to proclaim the good news. It's a treasure that can't be measured that is brought to the people. It's a message of rescue. The word saved is used in verse 13. It's rescuing people off a burning ship, a burning bill, out of a burning building or off a sinking ship from a deadly disease. That's why this word beautiful can be translated also timely. How timely. As though you're drowning in the the last few seconds when you're going to drown and an arm pulls you out. How beautiful and timely that arm was to get you right at that point where you were almost gone. That's the sense of this passage that he quotes. Oh, how welcome, uh, one translation has it, just in the nick of time. And so to refuse this message, to refuse this report, is to refuse God himself because he is the one, as Paul outlines, and we'll dig into it some, he's the one who's commissioned that gospel. He is the one who sends it. And it is even Christ who speaks in that gospel. And so to refuse it is to refuse God Himself, to refuse God's gracious offer to have a relationship with Him, with the very One who made you, the very One who sustains your life. To refuse this message is to hate God to the uttermost. Because it is a message of His sacrifice for you. It's a message of the greatest act of love for your sake that He might be gracious to you, that you might enter into the most amazing thing that can happen to a human being, and that is fellowship with God Himself. To refuse that is the height of ungodliness. And so I want to, in our message today, to encourage you. To encourage you to believe in Him. To encourage you to be one who calls on Him. To have Him and hold Him, as we say in the marriage vow. I love that beautiful statement. To have her, to hold her. And that's what God offers. He says, will you have me and hold me? I will have you and hold you through my work, through my son. Do you want? And I'm urging you to have him and hold him and call upon him in in the middle of every part of your life. And I'm urging you who do call on him to do so all the more. Now we're going to urge this faith in Christ against the backdrop of Israel's rejection of Christ. See, Paul, the leading. A minister, a leading preacher to the Gentiles, was himself a leading Jew at the time of his conversion. And he was constantly faced with this dichotomy as he went first to the Jews, because he, he, he used the synagogues to preach the gospel. And in synagogue after synagogue, largely the Jews, the very people to whom the Messiah belonged the very people to whom he first presented himself, by and large, the Jews rejected him. But then Gentiles seemed to flock. Paul's never concerned about Gentile rejection, really. Though, of course, he was always concerned that they would reject him. But he's more concerned always with Jewish rejection. And It it presented a problem because if almost almost all the Jews reject Messiah, then the Jews would stand there and say, this isn't Messiah. Look, we all say he's not. we, We hold the key to the Old Testament, not them. This little smattering, this little remnant of Jews going around telling people about Messiah. See the strength of that. And So Paul is constantly urging in the synagogues, arguing from the Old Testament, oh no, This is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of God's work among Israel is the coming forth of Messiah and this breaking out to the nations. But constantly, and especially in this passage 9 through 11, he's dealing with this issue of Israel's rejection. He's shown in the first part of chapter 9 that it's part of the purpose of God, working His purpose out even in the rejection of the Jews. But then later in chapter 9 and here in chapter 10, he keeps dealing with the unbelief of the Jews. The unbelief of the Jews. So first, I want to look at, the, at this passage. He's, he's setting forth the full opportunity that the Jews had. The full opportunity that Israel had. Uh, both in the way the gospel has gone forth Okay, in their day, And he goes back to the scriptures and shows not only has the gospel go forth, but this was predicted in the Old Testament. This whole thing, not only that the gospel would go forth, it was predicted that the Gentiles would respond and even that Israel would turn away. And still you don't see it. See? But this all the more he's showing that God has done everything possible to make himself known and still there's been this rejection. Of course, this isn't for the ultimate purpose for you and and me, uh, you and I, to point the finger at the Jew, but to ask our question, this question, have I rejected the message? Have I not believed in the good news? Well... This series that it begins with, let's look at the opportunity the Jews had. These first two verses, verses 14 and 15, are really Paul's way to show that the gospel has gone forth. Those are calling on him and and it traces all the way back to the fact that God has sent someone to them. So the real point of this is not to try to prove that we need to send people in missions, although it does that, okay? It does make the point that no one can ultimately hear the gospel and believe in Christ and call upon him unless someone is sent to preach that word. That's the basic message. But Paul's doing it this way. He says, look, if people are calling on Christ then it means that they must have heard about him. If they heard, that means there must be someone who preached to them. And if they preached, that meant God himself has sent them. And that's why then he uses Isaiah 52, 7 and verse 15 to say, just as it was written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. So this is his way of saying, God has surely, definitely sent his word out to All people, and of course, if to all people, certainly the Jews. It was the synagogues even by which the Gentiles came to know Christ, those who were attached to the Jewish temple, uh, Jewish synagogues. So it was always through Jewish means. So if the world has heard it, certainly the Jews have heard it. Paul is making that point. And that passage in Isaiah that he quotes in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet, that was always regarded as a messianic passage, a passage that looked to when the time of Messiah comes and it's being uh, proclaimed. And it's interesting, instead of him, singular in the Old Testament, he says, those who preach the good news. So he's pointing to those at the time of Christ who are preaching the good news. So this is his way of saying that for sure God has commissioned and sent the gospel out. And that's and then he repeats that in verse 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word about Christ. That's how you can translate that. It's the word that proclaims Christ, the word that reveals Christ. Then he asks again in verse 18, "Have they not heard? Have the Jews really heard?" And then he, this is an interesting thing. He quotes from Psalm 19, which is about the creation, the architecture of creation and how it proclaims everywhere the glory of God. Kind of an unusual thing that he would do. But Paul's using this to say, just like God in the natural creation has shown forth His glory, He's shown forth His glory in all places through the gospel. Oh yes, they've heard. It's gone forth just like natural revelation has gone forth. It spread itself everywhere in that way. It's interesting that in Colossians 1, Paul can say, This gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. And later in Colossians 1, he says, This gospel that you heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven he didn't mean that every single person had heard it because he even now is talking in Romans about wanting to go to Spain. But he is using this to say, yes, by and large, the Jews all have heard the gospel. The huge number of them have heard and know this gospel. It's spread just like natural creation uh, or natural revelation. And then he, in verses 19, and following, talks about how uh, he uses these passages from the Old Testament uh, to show that these very things were predicted in the Old Testament. This breaking out of the gospel and Gentile response and is and Jewish reaction was even predicted in the Old Testament. So Paul is saying, this is the result of God's constant work in the Old Testament. This is His Messiah. This is His Son. The, the gospel, the good news, the, the culmination of everything is happening right now, and yet they themselves are not believing it. So he quotes then in verse 19 from Deuteronomy, "You Jews, I'm going to make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry." And it was known at the time, the terrible wrath that was brought against Christians from Jews all over. This very thing was happening. Here's Paul saying, back in Deuteronomy 32, he's talking about when the Jews will be submitting to idolatry and how God's going to make them jealous and angry with a, a nation that's really no nation, a foolish nation, a nation that is so far off from God, and yet God's going to draw them to himself. And Paul says... There is nothing more godless. The same kind of godlessness that was in idolatry is now present in the rejection of Jesus Christ. And so he says, The time is here. He is now making you jealous. You are now rejecting it, even as he said. It's interesting in this section, he quotes the Old Testament six times. And you you may recall in Luke 24, when Jesus was teaching about himself in the Old Testament, uh, Luke says, he said from the law and the Psalms and the prophets, all three sections of scripture. And Paul uses all three sections, two quotes from the prophets, Isaiah, then the Psalms, then the law, then prophet Isaiah two times again. So he's just ranging over the whole Old Testament to show that these things were predicted. And then finally, he says, Isaiah is so bold. And here he's not talking about his bold heart, but he's the boldness of what he says that I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Speaking of the Gentiles here, And that's so much like what he said in chapter 9, verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. So God came after us. God came after them. They weren't seeking him. It shows his great mercy and grace in reaching out to the Gentiles. But then in verse 21, this tragic statement that he has held his hands out all day long. And that, he moves the all day long from the original quote up front to emphasize, all day long I've held out my hands. And usually this holding out of hands in the Old Testament was for someone supplicating God, asking God. In this dramatic statement, here's God welcoming, urging Israel. And Paul says, all day, it means Continually. It's really marking the whole of the Jewish time. The whole of the Old Testament. Virtually was this. God holding forth His arms to Israel. To an obstinate, a disobedient, and contrary people. Well, verse 21 talks about that rejection. And verse 16 did as well. Because right as He's talking about how the gospel goes forth, there's this interruption, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, this this, uh, phrase when he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel, it's a particular uh, literary device. It's an understatement. uh, So that he really means, which is the truth, hardly any of them have obeyed the gospel. It's like you'd say if somebody slapped you in the face and say, you know, that didn't feel so good, right? It'd be an understatement. Now, that really hurt, but you'd say that didn't feel so good. And that's what Paul is saying here, uh, that they have not all obeyed the gospel. What an understatement. Hardly any. Only a remnant have obeyed the gospel. Only a small portion have obeyed the gospel. And he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is an amazing quote because, as some of you may know, Isaiah 53, this is the beginning verse of Isaiah 53, the greatest description in the Old Testament of the death of Christ. But how, what's the context for describing the death of Christ? Who has believed this? Stunning that Paul would use that verse in describing the Jewish reaction to the proclamation of Christ when in its original context it begins the very chapter of the most glorious description of Jesus. Who has believed this glorious report? Who has believed in this Messiah who has died? Who has? And so, as we look at what happened with the Jews, this amazing treasure of Jesus Christ held forth to them that was largely rejected. We first, of course, have to rejoice that there was a remnant that believed. Paul among them, all the apostles. As you've heard me say before, the the Jewish rabbi who years ago made the statement concerning the organization Jews for Jesus, there's no such thing as Jews for Jesus, right? Well, maybe there were, like Paul and Peter and all the apostles and all the beginning Christians who were Jews, right? They were all Jews for Jesus. And because of those Jews for Jesus, there became Gentiles for Jesus, right? We praise God for His... The work that he has done through the remnant of Jewish people. And like Paul does does in this chapter and the chapter before, longing for their salvation. Wishing, as he says in chapter 9, if it were possible that I could even be cursed in order that they might be saved. That's how urgently Paul desired their salvation. And it is the height of wickedness that so-called Christians have demonized Jews in our history. That is the greatest wickedness of all. That we would not be grateful for what God has done through His people and even have the hope, as chapter 11 will bring us to, of the restoration of His people in large numbers. Uh, His original people of of the Jews. Now, I want to close then uh, with two things. One, just the, the revelation of God's incredible mercy in this passage. And then, what it, a little bit of what it means to respond in faith. Just meditate with me a bit about God's incredible mercy. In this process of making known Christ, of Gentile response and Jewish rejection, in the midst of this, the mercy of God. It, As I've already said, it marks the whole age of Israel. Look at this God who would extend himself in this way. Still, at the end of the chapter, he doesn't say his arms are now not outstretched. And you'd think by now, uh, given this rejection of Christ, that his arms wouldn't be out. So you just find well, oh, that's it. <laughs> I don't care anymore. But not only are his arms continued to be outstretched to all who are lost, including the Jews, but it says in uh, verse 19, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And here's the picture I got from this it's as though, even in his work among the Gentiles, he's constantly looking over his shoulder to see if it will cause a response from his people. What mercy! You would think it'd be over. You'd think he'd say, I'm done with you. But even his work among the Gentiles has, even though, of course, it's genuine and he loves those he's saving, he still has this regard for making them jealous that they might come to him. Amazing mercy. And with this same love and willingness, he comes to you. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says. God is making His appeal through us. And so we implore you, or some translations have beg you to be reconciled to Christ. Picturing God inflaming, enabling the very preaching of the Word so that it is God through the preachers imploring you to come to Him and be reconciled to Him. and so in all of the proclamation of the prophets in all the proclamation of the apostles in all the proclamation the true proclamation of the gospel today we can actually picture god stretching forth his hands and and that's what you need to see if you're here and apart from Christ. It's not just me. Don't look at me. Don't think about just this guy up there talking. But think about this message that God has commissioned, that we proclaim His Son. And think of God then stretching forth His hands to you saying, Will you have my Son? It's Him that you have to do with, not me. It's Him that you must respond to. He is the one, His earnestness. And imagine a man of character and abilities and means... Earned status in the community for both his accomplishments and his kindness. A man humble and strong and wise and tender. Uh, Romantic to the core. A passionate lover in every sense. And you women are saying, yeah, in your dreams. But imagine him appealing to a woman living in squalor who refuses his invitation to be his wife because she won't leave her drugs, her prostitution, her two-week boyfriends, and the beatings from those that own her and use her. Then you have something of a picture of our refusing what's called earlier in this chapter the riches of Christ. The riches of Christ. And so God, with this genuine longing to convey to us all the riches of His salvation, all the riches of fellowship with Him, all the riches of His protective care, all the riches of what it means to live as one forgiven and transformed, the riches of learning to love others in a whole new way. Jesus said in Luke 10, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And even in this passage, amazing statement, it says, how do they believe in him? And the literal reading is in verse 14, whom they have never heard. The idea being that the very voice of Christ, so to speak, the very urging of Christ himself is found in the gospel. And so, we've, the, Christ has commissioned this. God has commissioned this message. He is involved in it. And we urge you, we urge you not to turn away from it. Then, finally, this response of faith. Notice, interestingly, what he says in verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel, obeying the good news. Yet, that's equated with, in the same verse... Who has believed. And earlier, calling on Him, believing in Him. Earlier, believing that He's raised from the dead, believing in Him as Lord. And so, the obedience that God requires, this is so wonderful. What is the obedience God requires of you? It's the obedience of helpless dependence, (laughs) it's the obedience of abandoning your own resources. And your own righteousness and your own strength and casting yourself upon Christ alone for your salvation. That's the obedience. He calls it earlier in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, the obedience of faith. Faith is our obedience. Helpless trust is our obedience. Not looking from within you to find the answers. The message comes from outside to you. It's the message of Jesus Christ. the, The gospel about Christ. Verse 17. Not cleaning up your act. Not fixing yourself. Not making yourself presentable. Not meeting God halfway. No. Helpless abandonment to His power and grace. To obey means to call on Him. (laughs) See, that's, that's helpless, but it's expectant. Calling on Him. Let me read what Calvin says He who calls upon God enters the only haven of salvation and the most secure refuge. As a son commits himself to the bosom of a perfect and most loving father, to be protected by his care, cherished by his gentleness and love, sustained by his kindness and strengthened by his power. He says this kind of calling is only possible for the man who is so greatly persuaded of God's fatherly kindness. That's why, how will you call on him unless you believe in Him, unless you become convinced in what He's done in Christ, you are trustworthy. I call upon you to be mine. I see what you are in Christ Jesus and I call upon you that I might have you, that you might own me. You see His faithfulness. It's interesting, the, uh, the philosopher Plotinus actually thanked God. He was a neoplatonist, which means he was against the body and against creation and all about spirit and getting rid of the physical and getting into the spiritual. Here was his prayer. I thank you, God, that you are not tied to an immortal body. Thank you that you are free. You're not like us. You're set free from this physical world. Well, We we pray the opposite. We pray, oh God, thank you that you took to yourself a body. Thank you that you came into our condition. Thank you, oh God, that you would live a righteous life for our sake. Thank you that you would bear our sins in your body on the cross as our God. Thank you that you're raised from the dead to bring us to new life. Thank you that you're raised the right hand of God. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you took a body. (laughs) That's the God that we worship. That's the God that presents himself to you. I'm a God who bears the very punishment of those who sinned against me. Will you entrust your life to me? Will you entrust your life to me? Then we embark on a whole life, as we're we're named in Scripture, those who call on God. That just means this, those who are forever convinced of the goodness and kindness of their God in Christ. This God who would do this thing for me of giving His Son, I abandon myself to Him. I abandon myself to His power. I take you as my Lord. I take you to rule me. I take you to govern me. I take you to protect me. I take you to transform me. I take you that you might forgive me. Have you, have you believed the message? Let us pray. Lord, you have acted so gloriously. In the years before Christ, Picturing in so many ways the coming of Messiah. And then beyond all imagination, God Himself taking flesh. God Himself living a life under the law. God Himself, the God-man bearing our sins. And the God-man being raised from the dead. O Lord, we pray that you would take away our doubt. You would take away our self-will, our self-dependence. We pray, O Lord, that we might receive you as our Lord over every part of our lives. We know that can't be a perfect commitment, but Lord, bring it about in our lives that it will be a sincere one and a growing one to give ourselves up to such a gracious, kind king as this one is. Oh, Lord, bless us for your
0: namesake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. rain break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away
1: won't you chase my fears away